So we're very excited that our guest today is Sydney Maki from Bloomberg. Sydney, I hope I said your name right. And she has been writing uh, some of the most interesting pieces on sovereign debt recently across a range of issuers that we're interested in, ranging from the rise in Italian yields to whether or not India is going to be included in the index and it's going to replace Russia to otherwise obscure sovereign debt crises, such as that in Suriname and Barbados's blue bond purchase that puzzles us. So there's really uh, so much that we want to ask Sydney about, but we will try to constrain ourselves uh, to only a couple of topics since we have to keep the podcast length uh, manageable so that Liana does not uh, throw a fit. So Sydney, welcome to our podcast. We are so thrilled to have you here. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm a big fan, so I'm very much looking forward to chatting today. Well, you're very kind. Before we get into the details of the specific sovereign crises that we want to ask you about, can you give us a sense of what's going on in the overall markets from your perspective? And and part of the reason I want to get your sense of this, apart from the fact that you seem to be ahead of the game, often, uh, at least vis-a-vis us, is that I've been seeing or hearing contradictory things. On, on the one hand, a lot of the people in the market I talk to say that things are bad. I was talking to a very senior lawyer at one of the firms that does sovereign issuances just earlier this morning, and she said, you know, I'm not really not that busy, nothing to do, no deals to do. Other, If you're not doing restructurings, you're not busy. And then on the other hand, I read about this giant Turkish issuance, and Turkey's not exactly at the top of my list of credible, stable issuers. And yet the rumor is that this issuance was oversubscribed, maybe 15 times oversubscribed. And there's a lot of appetite uh, for Turkish bonds. I think that just doesn't, it just, what the hell's going on, Sydney? It's it's a good question. And I think it's something that everybody who is watching these markets is sort of scratching their head about because generally this year, it's it's been really tough. There, I crunched the numbers last night and it looked like at least within the Bloomberg sovereign USD debt indexes, there were at least 16 sovereigns that have debt that are trading at distressed levels. And of course, that's not even including the countries that have been excluded from the indexes like Russia this year. Um, A lot of this has to do, of course, with Federal Reserve and this very aggressive fight against inflation that we're seeing. And that's sending borrowing costs for foreign governments that are trying to tap U.S. dollar markets here in the States much, much higher. It's so interesting that you point out Turkey because, of course, it's it's a country that 
we've watched very closely in terms of uh, monetary policy that doesn't necessarily match what we're seeing in other parts of the world. Um, and it's a bit of a head scratcher here too. I, I think the reasoning that Bloomberg reporters were able to come up with was essentially just that European debt markets had a window and opened up, um, which definitely helped. And then just the transmission of high inflation and central bank policy to credit spreads was starting to diminish. So it just seemed like the stars aligned, the moment opened up and, and there was a window for Turkey to tap these markets. But really, it seems like that is more of an exception than a rule, at least to me. I mean, overall, the quick number crunch that I was doing this morning, it was showing me the annual debt issuance from emerging market governments and companies is still down like almost 60% from a year ago. So by and far, it is not the COVID era rush to top markets that we were able to see uh, in 2020. It's, it's much more difficult at this point. And so a lot of emerging market governments, as you mentioned, are in a crunch. Um, you add in the fact that inflation has proven to be very sticky. It's an issue in so many parts of the world. And of course, it's more than this economic indicator that it's sometimes made out to be, right? There are very real and painful effects of the higher costs of food and fuel. And we've seen those pressures mount in several different countries and stir protests in places like Sri Lanka, which did also ultimately default. Um, but at this point, there is sort of a lull. And it's it's so interesting that you mentioned your your friend who's practicing law being being a little bit bored because uh, earlier in the year, you know, we were looking to see whether we were at risk of a cascade of defaults and restructurings. So Sydney, can we just a couple minutes on um, on the Turkey, uh, and then I, I'm I'm hoping we can go to Suriname. That do you believe this magic window theory? I, I hear it all the time from folks in the market, and in fact, this is how underwriters often talk to issuers and they'll say uh you know th this is a special window and we got we got to seize the window it's the three days and let's let's do let's do an issuance and uh, i i had the misfortune of going to uh, graduate school in economics a long long time ago and I, I was terrible at it but it one thing it did teach me is to be deeply skeptical about this these stories about magic pricing windows, like magic, it, it, it doesn't exist. And this, I can't help but think that there's something really fishy, as my mom would say, there's something black in the lentils with this Turkish issuance. How, how in the world, it, how in the world is, is a Turkish issuance this popular? And, and especially in this high inflation context with Erdogan having really upside down economic theories about what he's going to do, is there a different story possible that there's something dubious going on in here? Or I'm just a, okay, I'm just a suspicious person. No, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall 
during some of those bond road shows that they must have held because it is a little strange. It's not a small amount of money. I believe it was a $1.5 billion bond that was priced. Um, and I think the yield ended up being about 10%. And so when you're looking at other sovereigns that have not been able to tap markets or have had to look for other sources of, of funding to fill gaps, it's, it is a little surprising that Turkey was the one that was able to swoop in and get the deal done. Um, and of course, underwriters will always sort of point to these windows. I, I know that one metric we were looking at was the sovereign spread of Turkish debt. So that extra yield that investors essentially demand to hold over U.S. treasuries if they're going to take on Turkish debt or any other emerging market sovereign debt. But in Turkey's case, that number just fell below 500 for the first time in a while. It's reached highs close to 800, which is getting close to, you know, just fully distressed territory. So, you know, it, there is a chance that it was just the moment in markets where attention had been drawn away, sentiment wasn't quite as sour as it has been, and Turkey was able to look at that, tap the banks and say, well, now could be a good time. We want to raise global capital. We want U.S. dollars that we can use to support the economy. And let's do it while we can, because especially after the last Federal Reserve meeting in early November, it seems like we're going to have this higher for longer rate policy coming out of the U.S. So as a country, if you think you're going to have to tap U.S. markets within even the next year or however long the Fed policy remains very tight, Maybe there's some logic to trying to do it before that happens, before it's even more expensive. So, Sydney, there, there's so much, I think, to talk about that it's tempting to, uh, for me at least, to stay um, on this puzzle of why Turkey is the exception. But since we've got a limited amount of your time, I'm hoping we can shift to Suriname. Both Me Too and I have been interested in some of the aspects of that debt crisis that I think make it a bit unique. And, and so maybe I can tell you that the two things that strike me as especially interesting about it, and I'm hoping you can either pick one of those to, to riff on or maybe tell me why I'm missing the boat and actually there's there's something much more uh, much more interesting uh, uh, about this this um, debt crisis but for me the two interesting things are you know there was the the fun IMF program in 2021 which seems to have kind of gone off the rails and one of the the notable things to me about that was that the fund kind of hand waved Chinese financing assurances, you know, normally you're supposed to get a, a commitment that the bilateral creditors are going to basically restructure their debts on terms that are in accordance with what, uh, in this case, the, the, the Paris Club did and the fund was expecting. And, you know, as I understand it, that didn't really happen. There's this great big uncertainty associated with how the Chinese debt would be treated. And, and the fund kind of ignored that and, and went ahead. And, and that still is an open question. And, and so that's one of the things that 
that's really striking to me about it. And the other is the discovery of these oil fields offshore that has injected a real wild card into negotiations where, you know, I understand it's both hard to value the future proceeds from oil exports since those fields have yet to been to be developed, but also some tension between the government and its bondholders about how to share those proceeds once they start flowing. So I, I'm hoping you can kind of lend some clarity about what you think is interesting about what's going on there. Absolutely. So I think that Suriname's entire debt story has been really fascinating. It really stands apart from the other restructurings that that I've been covering over the past several years. And the oil piece stands out to me as the big one. Um, of course, I write for Bloomberg. We're covering Wall Street and capitalism and finance. So I, I'm covering the bondholders in particular and the effect on financial markets and the financial assets. Um, and as you say, these potential oil royalties have emerged as this major focus within the negotiations to restructure the debt. And as far as I can tell, it feels like the biggest sticking point because this is a country that defaulted on its debt. I think three times was the tally that Fitch came up with during the pandemic. Um, and then of course, it has not been able to come to a complete agreement to work out its debt situation at this point. And part of that, as you say, is the fact that currently the government isn't raking in tons of money from oil. Um, last week, one of the major oil drillers, Apache, reported their earnings and cited Suriname and the exploration there as, as a point of optimism. But of course, the money's not actually pouring in yet. And so how do you decide what is fair um, if they restructure now based on the current financial calculations that they have, things could change very rapidly and a deal could seem outdated or unfair in a couple of years if things change. Um, so that's that's been an interesting point for me is watching this conversation happen and some of the tools that bondholders and the government are exploring to address that gap that has emerged. Um, there's a recovery tool that I'm happy to get into a little bit more later on if you're interested that would essentially click in to play if oil royalties start pouring in, but would be a mechanism that isn't triggered if you know the oil money doesn't come, um, which is unlike a lot of other restructurings that, that I've been watching. Uh, so I do actually, can I ask you to talk about the sort of value recovery instrument? So, and the the kind of subtext here from my perspective is, I think there has been a historically a ton of enthusiasm for those kinds of contingent instruments among economists and some sort of market reformers, but you know, the, the experience with them has not been great. Argentina is certainly one example. I don't think Ukraine's experience was super good. And so here, basically, my, my sense of the underlying dynamics is that the IMF has soured on these instruments too. And also maybe that the fund is not willing to 
so in its sort of calculation of the financing envelope here and its the sort of implicit estimate of the size of the the haircut bondholders need to take it's not even taking oil revenues into account so like what is your sense of the the market perception of these value recovery instruments and maybe about the perception of the fund's role as a either a facilitator or a roadblock here definitely and i think that's a conversation that i've heard come up more and more i had an interesting conversation in october with joseph stiglitz and martin guzman talking about the imf's role within restructurings in particular but even just the broader debt environment that we're in and in Suriname in particular so many of the calculations that bondholders and creditors generally want to lean back on are those from the IMF. Um, and the IMF deal that, that you mentioned earlier was interesting because it took a long time to get fully approved. And a lot of, I think, the questions that were swirling around it had to do with how the IMF would factor in this potential money that doesn't, cur- it doesn't currently exist. Um, And so that role has been a really interesting one. And the recovery instrument that the bondholders and and Suriname had been talking about at least a few months ago would essentially have a smaller haircut, it seemed. um, It would be a tool not unlike Argentina or Ukraine's GDP-linked warrants that tick in if GDP, if the economy is able to grow at a certain at a certain pace. Um, and it's it seems, at least to me, like like an interesting solution, right? You you have a gap that doesn't seem to be closing. And so this tool could potentially please both sides. Suriname would be able to close the deal, and bondholders would be able to feel like they were getting something that is fair. Um, in terms of across the creditor spectrum. It gets tricky because is this a tool that will also be implemented with bilateral creditors or with multilateral creditors? And that goes back to your point on IMF sort of burden sharing of creditors when there is a restructuring situation. So Sydney, if, if I'm I'm gonna try to keep on the point that uh, Mark raised because th- th- this is this value recovery instrument notion is so interesting in light of recent experiences. So my memory is that we had a bunch of commodity linkers in the Brady era. Uh, You come out of the Brady era and say for a country like Mexico that is dependent on oil for a lot of its foreign currency revenues uh, investors say look if you if you have a bunch of oil and or the price of oil recovers then we want a share of this uh, and then the these commodity linkers sort of disappear and we have multiple decades of just plain vanilla sovereign bonds and that then some economists decide, oh, you know, we should have uh, GDP linkers to save the world from sovereign crises, and the IMF gets all enthusiastic about them, and we we have uh, 
GDP warrants uh, stuffed into the restructurings for countries like Argentina. We, we had one of them in Greece as well. Uh, Ukraine was just, I mean, that, that was the most egregious example of really screwing up a GDP warrant. But they, they, these, these have not worked so well in part because of design flaws, but in part because we can't figure out how to deal with a government behavior because governments do shit like the Argentine government inflating its GDP numbers for political reasons and then ending up having to pay a premium and then getting getting enmeshed in this ridiculous litigation where investors want to keep getting uh, the high payments that are the product of Argentina lying about its numbers and Ukraine not putting a cap on its uh, GDP warrants and then having to pay a big premium to get the cap removed. In the context of countries, oil-rich countries like Suriname or potentially oil-rich countries like Suriname, there's an additional complication that's that at least to me seems something we should talk about, which is that these are poor countries. And to have creditors want to take a share of whatever little upside this poor country has in the future, A, it it seems a a bit too greedy, but B, let's just be pragmatic. Is the country going to give it to you? So they, they get a big windfall and the, like the first thing they want to do is not to help build an addition, uh, uh, addition to some hedge fund manager's house in mansion in Connecticut. I shouldn't say house because they don't have houses. So that that was kind of uh, rambly, but it, it it gives me the heebie-jeebies. These don't seem like they're going to work for either side. And I'm thinking of Mozambique and, you know, all of the creditor enthusiasm there for, I, I think there was natural gas, right? Or uh, Angola or Nigeria, like it, everybody sees uh, the windfall coming. And th- there there is very little sense of the political problems of taking away the windfall from a poor country. No, I think that's a really important point to hit on. And it's one that came up within the disagreement between Suriname and a key group of bondholders, because the difference in their two proposals for this tool was essentially that the nation wanted exclusive claim to the first $500 million worth of oil royalties. Investors wanted access after only $50 million. So that's a huge difference in the amount of money that the government would be able to keep and use for its own economic growth and development before Wall Street could come in and and start taking some of that money as part of the restructuring, essentially. And so I think that's the crux of the issue. And as we go forward, especially in this new sort of pandemic shadowed world that we live in, I think those conversations are going to get louder and they're very important to have because these debt conversations do not happen in a vacuum, right? It's it's not as simple as just checking numbers and boxes and making sure everything adds up correctly. 
there are very real implications for the people that are affected for entire economies, for growth, for the amount of stimulus or money that governments can then spend on programs that would really help people. And, and that's the split that I think has emerged. And especially with COVID and the very deep focus that happened on humanitarian crisis during that period and how it interacts with debt crises as well. That's a conversation about who should be driving and making sure that that is considered. Some would say multilaterals like the IMF should be making sure that these negotiations address every element involved here. Well, Sydney, let's take a real short break. And then when we come back, I'd like to ask some questions about the blue bonds that um, Barbados just issued, uh, or that's a close enough description, I think, for for our purposes. But uh, um, let's take a short break first. Sydney, I'd like to ask about the the blue bond issued by Barbados. And and maybe the way I'm going to ask it is just by sort of offering two different characterizations of it, both of which seem true to me. And it's um, the fact that they're both true is one of the reasons why I struggle figuring out what I think about deals like this. But maybe then that'll give you a chance to Tell us what attracted you to to write about the the uh, the blue bond deal. So, the kind of optimistic perspective is that you've got a nonprofit, the Nature Conservancy, that's doing really innovative financial engineering in a way to sort of offer a model for how we can marshal some private finance to fund uh, climate adaptation and mitigation and environmental preservation. And they're working with a really sort of forward-thinking government that's sort of leading the push in all kinds of ways to convince the rich Western world to finance uh, climate adaptation and mitigation in poorer parts of the world too. So, you know, they're working together to kind of show what they can do locally, but also to put pressure on rich governments to to do their much larger part. And that's like the optimistic story. And then the pessimistic side of me, or maybe the cynical side of me, looks at this and, and says, a debt buyback at 92 and a quarter, 92 and three quarters, or whatever it was, that frees up 50 million over 15 years or whatever it is, some relative pittance to invest in the environment. And that maybe is not just sort of questionable, but outright stupid from the perspective of someone who cares about lowering debt. And so I look at this and I'm like, what it what is going on? I don't understand why anyone would do this transaction when I'm when I'm feeling cynical. And I, well, I'm puzzled because it seems like both of those stories could be told about this deal. And I'm wondering which you think is the right one, or whether neither of them is right, or or whether whether you're interested for some other reason. Can I just, uh, Sydney, just before um, you answer, I, I just wanted to ask a clarification 
on the these deals. My understanding, but I couldn't really tell, was that Barbados didn't uh, retire the entire debt stock. So it, it didn't sort of have a big purchase where it then did uh, a cram down on uh, dissenting creditors on a deeply discounted bond. Instead, it just went into the market and bought a big, big chunk of debt at a very high price. A tiny, I, a tiny chunk of debt, like well, relative to the amount outstanding. Debt, right? But at a high price. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm actually glad that we're talking about this, especially after talking about Suriname, because it's total opposite. Suriname, of course, is hinging its debt restructuring on oil royalties, which is not the greenest and most environmentally thing to be doing is drilling in the waters off the shore. Um, and on the flip side, this deal that we're talking about in Barbados was one really spearheaded by a US-based charity, the Nature Conservancy. And the point of it is that at the end, from the Nature Conservancy's perspective, the country will have a slightly either cheaper path ahead in terms of debt servicing. And part of that includes an agreement that is made to conserve more of the marine environment. Um, so very different sort of goals or at least discussions connected to these two, these two debt transactions. Um, and Barbados, this is actually not the first time this has happened. I wrote about the lease about a year ago. And that one was different because as you say me too, in that situation, the full quote unquote super bond was retired essentially um, and swapped out to become allegedly cheaper debt through a loan. It's sort of a convoluted process of, of who is borrowing money and who is lending to who and how the agreements flow through. But, but in the end, the idea would be that debt servicing is cheaper and these sovereigns would no longer have as large a dependence on Wall Street. Instead, the dependence then falls to essentially these groups created and tied to the Nature Conservancy that will have goals, they say, are linked to marine conservation. Um, but in Barbados, it's different. It was only $150 million of the sovereign debt. Uh, part of it, I think it was split about half and half, maybe 80 million was a US dollar bond and the rest was all local Barbados dollar denominated notes. Um, and the prices were not seriously distressed. I, I think around the time I was writing about this in mid-September, the bonds were around 95 cents on the dollar, which is pretty good. That is far from the distressed prices that you see in countries that are trying to negotiate a restructuring. Um, so that is a bit unusual. And I think the question of how this will work is one that is still up in the air because even though this isn't the first time it's happened, it's pretty new. The first deal was in Seychelles, I wanna say in the mid 2010s. And then Belize last year, we don't have a great idea yet of how this works over the long term and how successful the both the goals on the debt sustainability side and on the ocean sustainability side actually carry out. And, and it's kind of just to sort of push on this a little a little more, you know. So, me too. The, the the contrast that 
you and me too have raised with the Belize deal is a really interesting one. I mean, if if a debt buyback makes sense under any circumstances, it has to be those where you're buying back very, very cheaply and you're cramming the deal down on the remainder of the the that bond. I mean, uh, I think one of the classic objections, as I understand it, to using debt buybacks as a way of sort of managing your debt burden was sort of twofold. One is that in, investors can get wind of the buyback and then you wind up overpaying, but also it can drive up the value of the remaining debt stock. I just, do you have a sense of why the deal held interest for Barbados? Looking at this, I just, it seems really strange to me. I mean, there's still 530 million or something outstanding of the the dollar bond and prices are, were sort of in the steady decline as far as I can tell, starting by around March of this year. And so, you know, there's an argument that, you know, they paid significantly more than they would have to. I, I just, I'm so puzzled by this deal from the perspectives, from the perspective of, of Barbados. That was a question that I also asked because it is unusual that this wasn't the situation of a very large overhaul of the debt structure and turning all of the bonds into loans. It was just a portion, as you say. And the answer that I got was that the government was very excited by the prospect of being involved in an initiative as ambitious as this, and that had these ties to a quote-unquote blue economy, a more ocean-friendly, sustainable approach. Um, and, and that was sort of the answer I got. And then on the money side, essentially that the loan would be cheaper. For investors, another very attractive point that I thought was interesting was that it's actually guaranteed. It had really interesting repayment guarantees from Inter-American Development Bank. So the bonds were very, very safe. Um, even if Barbados doesn't necessarily pay or if something happens with the deal, at the end of the day, investors have that guarantee, which is a pretty attractive thing, especially in emerging markets where that is not very common. Um, I, I wish I had a better answer in terms of all of the inner workings and conversations that led up to this deal and why they decided to approach it in this way, because it is quite different from, from what happened before. And at least for me, I have been trying to think and write and have discussions about the role of quote unquote ESG within debt restructurings. But of course, that is almost always in the context of some kind of distressed scenario. And in Barbados, they just didn't have that. So part of the part of me wants to say that this the triviality of the deal, and that's my characterization, not yours, is sort of in some ways kind of useful. This it, the deal's part of Mia Motley's push to get rich countries to provide the funding, which I think everyone agrees they have to do if we're going to tackle the the climate crisis seriously. And so now she can say, look, this is what we can do. We've we've done our part. And Soto Voce, like it's not very much. <laughs> but anyway, that's maybe that's too cynical a take. 
Well, I think it's at least partially part of the reason that the deal came to be. I had spoken to someone at the Nature Conservancy who had been involved with this from the very get-go. And she gave me this really great anecdote about um, the government being on board basically from the start, that there was immediate interest and acceptance and a push to figure out how it could be made to work. Um, and I don't think that that is the norm across the board. Even you know, talking to investors who have been involved with restructurings, both sovereign and even on a more provincial level in recent years, conversations about tying in some sort of sustainability linked bond or other ESG style of, of debt issuance as part of a bond swap in a restructuring has come up and it is really hard, it seems, to get buy-in. Um, this is really the only way that I've I've seen it actually come to fruition. Um, and of course, in, in Barbados, it wasn't necessarily a full restructuring situation. So Sydney, we are coming to the end of our time and we have lots more questions that we want to ask you, but um, I'm gonna tell a little anecdote and then ask you one, one final question. The, the anecdote is last week, I took the students in my sovereign debt class. I, I have a small band of uh, trustee students who really like the topic or pretend well in front of me that they like the topic. And they're students and they're, they're really excited about helping the world be a better place. And the New York Times article, I think, about the Barbados deal had just come out. And it has all these pretty pictures. And it it just the students, I mean, I think five of them uh, sent me the link to the article saying, isn't this great? And so that that also happened to be the, the morning that we were having a breakfast with a big investor in the sovereign debt market, somebody who buys distressed debt. And so mostly uh, he was explaining to us how the world of distressed debt purchasing occurs. But at the end of the conversation, one of my students said, uh, it's so great that you distressed debt investors are willing to participate in ESG oriented deals. And um, I, he he couldn't control himself at that point. I think he started laughing and he said, I love it when the Nature Conservancy and the official sector wants to pump in money to raise prices for us and allow me to buy, build another extension on my house. And just my heart uh, sank at that enthusiasm uh, that I heard and I, just the looks on the faces of my students that, th that this was what was happening. Now, I kind of hope that he's wrong. I kind of hope that instead he really is subsidizing uh, the making the world a better place. And I kind of hope that Barbados that has really good and smart advisors uh, is, is succeeding in leading the way to make the world a better place. But this guy is a billionaire um, for good reasons. All right, that's my anecdote. And I, I have a, 
a final question, which has to do with Barbados in part, but also the wider spectrum of deals. I We've been noticing an enthusiasm across countries, and maybe this is wrong, uh, to do buybacks. And in the economics of sovereign debt, buybacks, especially public buybacks by sort of charitable organizations or do-good organizations have long been viewed as just a subsidy to investors, like not a very good idea for the country, not a very good idea for the charity. And yet this seems to be back in vogue. And uh, lots of countries are telling investors, look, we're going to do a buyback and your bond prices will go up. And I'm thinking, what the hell? Like, the, why are you trying to please bondholders by artificially raising the value uh, of the debt? If the debt is crappy because your economy is going down the toilet, well, that's a risk that the bondholder should bear, not your citizenry. Okay, Sydney, you get the final word. I think a big dose of skepticism is needed in this conversation. I think you are completely right in that there isn't always great logic to it. And I think there is concern, especially from bondholder perspective this year, about just the general state of credit markets. I mean, broadly, most bond funds have had a pretty gnarly year. It has not been hugely great to be a bond investor in 2022, broadly across assets, across markets. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it's sort of a matter of, I will take anything. Um, and if a government is trying, I guess, to, to appease that, that could, that could go back to a decision for a buyback. But right, of course, these relationships don't happen. They're not just two-sided. It doesn't suggest folks sitting on Wall Street and government officials. There are so many other people affected and real economies, real jobs, real lives, real stimulus that could be flowing in and, and promoting growth. So it's a tough spot. I don't, I definitely do not envy government officials who are making these decisions. And I, I'm interested to see how it continues to play out. I, I do think that with the number of governments that currently have debt and distress, these conversations happening more and more frequently, it does feel like something needs to change or something needs to happen. And I'm eager to find out what that is. Well, Sydney, thank you for two things. The, the trivial thing is thank you for the phrase, a truly gnarly year, because I think that has to be the title for the, the episode. But more importantly, thanks so much for coming and talking with us. Um, it, it, We've been really excited about this one, and it was a thrill to have you on. So thank you, and um, we'll look forward to continuing that conversation. Thank you.